This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is Famous and Gravy, a podcast about quality of life as we see it, one dead celebrity at a time. Now for the opening quiz to reveal today's dead celebrity. This person died 2018, age 88. When he graduated from college in 1951, he had enough skill as a pitcher to earn a tryout with the New York Giants. Like Randy, what's his name with the arm in Arizona? Randy Johnson. Not dead, not 88 in 2018. He earned his PhD from Yale in 1957. Holy cow! This is going to be difficult for me. In his use of novelistic techniques in his nonfiction, Beginning in the 1960s, he helped create the enormously influential hybrid known as the new journalism. Oh, 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 it's not Truman Capote. Not Truman Capote. Someone said about him, quote, he has this unique gift of language that sets him apart. It is full of hyperbole. It is brilliant. It is funny. He has a wonderful ear for how people look and feel. What's the guy who's famous for gonzo journalism? Hunter S. Thompson is not Hunter S. Thompson. Ah, so close! He was almost as well known for his attire as his satire. He was instantly recognizable as he strolled down Madison Avenue, a tall, slender, blue-eyed, boyish-looking man in his spotless, three-piece, vanilla, bespoke suit. White suit? Tom Wolf. Tom Wolf. Tom Wolf. Tom Wolf? Today's dead celebrity is Tom Wolf. Count how many days you think you have left. It's uh, rather uh, grimly small, that number. You know, you tend to say thousands. Um, it's quite humbling to know that despite all of your aspirations, and all of your dreams, and all of the talents you think you have, you're made of clay. For nothing but a piece of crockery and a quart of blood. Welcome to Famous and Gravy. I'm Michael Osborne. And I'm Amit Kapoor. We are midlife, give or take, and we believe that the best years might lie ahead. So on this show, we study a celebrity who died in the last 10 years. We go through a series of categories in search of ingredients to life that we might desire and ultimately ask a big question. Would I want that life? Today, Tom Wolfe died 2018, age 88. Before we get to category one, I'm excited to say that once again, we're joined by Jennifer Keishan Armstrong. Jennifer, hello. How are you? I'm great. I'm excited to be with you here again. We are very happy to have you here again. So for listeners who don't know, Jennifer is a journalist and a television and culture historian. She also wrote a book called When Women Invented Television, which featured Betty White as a central figure. I sent you a short list of dead celebrity names. Tom Wolfe, today's dead celebrity, was on that list. And you wrote back and said, he inspired my entire career. Also, please explain the white suits. 
We'll get into the white suits in a minute. How did Tom Wolf inspire your entire career? <laughs> he sort of popped up in my life at the right time. I was in my early 20s. I was a local daily newspaper reporter, which is not a glamorous job at all in journalism, and definitely wanted sort of more than that for my foreseeable future. And when I, I believe I read Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test first, but then I just devoured all of them as a 20-something can do. And I was so excited, especially by his nonfiction, because that sort of gave me this path forward of, oh, I could write, you know, novelistic scenes and stories and entire books using the skills that I learned in journalism school and at newspapers. I don't have to be covering city council meetings forever. And there was something I thought particularly inspiring about his style. It's very flashy. And so I think that particularly captured my imagination at that particular time. And since then, I don't think I would want to write exactly like him. I don't think anyone could. But he really has kind of been this like beacon in my life where, you know, I kind of tried to figure out, given what I write about, how could I be a little more like him? Yeah. I think there's a lot in there that we're going to get to. And I love that you responded to that. I do think he's a little bit more obscure. I guess we'll, let's get into it. Category one, grading the first line of their obituary. Tom Wolfe, an innovative journalist and novelist whose technicolor, wildly punctuated prose brought to life the worlds of California surfers, car customizers, astronauts, and Manhattan's money status seekers in the works like the candy-colored tangerine flake streamlined baby, the right stuff, and bonfire of the vanities, died on Monday in a Manhattan hospital. He was 88. Jesus Christ, that is a long sentence. That is that is a very Tom Wolf sentence. Fuck me. <laughs> Did I he write his like, own first line? <laughs> <laughs> okay, there's a lot in here. Jennifer, your initial reaction. I'm a little surprised we went candy colored instead of electric Kool-Aid. Um, I agree with the right stuff wholeheartedly and definitely bonfire. I think you got to go with the novels and you got to go bonfire, but it's a little weird. Wholeheartedly agree. Yeah, that's oh my God, not just yes. us, though. I mean, that, I think all the data shows that electric Kool-Aid acid test was the breakthrough. Well, I do think the candy-colored tangerine flake streamlined baby put him on the map in a certain way. If you did, you did you guys come across that uh, Michael Lewis article in Vanity Fair about him? Yeah, I did. We'll link to it in the show notes. I mean, it's worth a read, and he certainly describes that as being the breakout moment in Tom Wolfe's career. However, I'd never heard of it before doing the research. Electric Kool-Aid acid test is, to me, certainly in the, on the same level as the right stuff in Bonfire. Electric Kool-Aid is iconic when you think of Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters and the bus. And, like, I mean, this was just referenced on an episode of Ted Lasso. Um, right. Like, that's, and I do not think Ted Lasso, like, next week is going to reference Candy Color. Like, I just don't think that's going to Yeah, it's, happen. I mean, it's by all, it's, it's one of the most definitive accounts of the 1960s in America. Yeah. Yeah. It's not the most definitive account. Exactly. Yes, this is argued as, like, the great 1960s nonfiction novel, for Christ's sakes. I mean, this feels like one of those where maybe the obit writers were saying, gosh, it's either got to be Candy Color, Tangerine, Flake, 
and just like agonized over and then made a stupid wrong decision. It's like you're trying to put on two shirts and you put on the wrong one and, and you get to the party and you're like, fuck, I was right the first time. I think we have an anti-drug obituary writer because they, they omitted it twice because they, in the list of the subcultures and then again in the list of the titles. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a super weird decision. I'll tell you the other omission that I see in here. They don't mention the white suits. Uh-huh. I mean, his commitment to the white suits it wasn't like he only dressed up that way for the photo shoots. It sounds like that's what he put on every day, you know, basically from the mid-60s onward. Maybe he's got a pair of gym shorts lying around somewhere, but um, it's a little hard to picture, right? Uh, but I don't know. Maybe that was the right move not to include the reference to the white suits in the first line of the obit, because it's not clear what it means other than it's just so recognizable. But I think if the first line of the obit is like what you know him for— then I kind of feel like that might belong to, or at least there's a case for it. Yeah, as an adjective, right? The white-suited journalist and novelist. <laughs> yeah. Not difficult. Not, I mean, there's so much happening here already. That's my yeah. only concern. I, yeah. I wish we could streamline the other stuff, but I agree because like, to me, the iconic things about him are like new journalism, wild prose, white suits. That's what I would boil it down to. But they really had quite a bit in that sentence already. So maybe an editor got rid of that. I don't know. But if you have 400 words, what's like 402? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a good point. It's a good point. What's the, what's, the, what's the cost at this point if you're really going for it? Dama, your joke was this obit written by Tom Wolfe actually kind of does feel a little bit like that. It doesn't have ellipses and exclamation points, but otherwise it feels like it's a Tom Wolfe written Tom Wolfe obituary. Yes. It would have been better with ellipses and exclamation points, I would just like to point out. Yeah. That, like, the reason his long sentences work is partly the punctuation. Like, yes, I want sir. white suits, exclamation <laughs> points. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And if they're going to have fun, like, you know, go for it, right? the subcultures, any of that, I think, you know, I actually think you needed a break in there somewhere. You had to read that out loud, so. Okay, let's talk about what's working. Innovative journalist is a very good phrase. Technicolor, wildly punctuated prose brought to life. I, I like that. There is a adventurousness in his writing mm -hmm. and, and an excitement about it. Technicolor also is kind of a nice word in terms of placing him in a cultural moment. I think that was kind of clever. So I'm, I applaud I, that. I agree with that. I like that too. And then, you know, we at least agree with two out of three of the works. But they also got in... This is who he writes about, California surfers, car customizers, astronauts, and Manhattan's moneyed status seekers. That's hyphenated. I really like that they got in status seekers. He talks about this a lot. A cross-cutting theme of his work is a sort of sociological view of humans as status seekers. They're talking about it specifically in reference to Bonfire here, moneyed status seekers. But I actually am impressed that they managed to get that phrase in there. I feel like that's kind of important. Yeah, I like that. I agree. Because I, I think about that a lot too, that he's talked about that the choices he makes are mainly, he looks for signifiers of status. Yeah. When he's describing. Right. And they also said who's innovative journalistic and novelist. So they did mm -hmm. get the two halves of his career in here. So there's some things that are working. I don't know. They didn't do a ton for the second half though. Bonfire of the Vanities was the first fiction, but there were what, like four to follow it. Yeah, but there's I'm, no nod to. I'm okay with that personally. Uh, should we grade this thing? Amit, do you have something else you want to say? No, I'm ready to grade. Okay. Well, why don't you go first? What do you got? Okay, I'm going to go six. 
Uh, okay. So I, I like the adventurousness in taking the Tom Wolf style run-on sentence. I like the avant-garde of that. I think we're all unanimous decision of why the F not electric Kool-Aid acid test. But I'm adding a point back for Technicolor. I like that cleverness. So uh, yeah, all lands at a six. Jennifer, where are you at? I was going to say six too. And I, for similar reasons, I like the first half things get a little crazy in the second half. And I even wonder a little if you needed to tell us the subcultures in addition to the titles, if the titles are so iconic, Mm, maybe we know that already. And maybe that's a place you can win back some breath. So (laughs) that that would be my take. I went seven. I think this is a really hard one. I think that's why I'm bumping it a notch higher. I think that how you know who Tom Wolf is and what you should know him for in 1965, and then in 1980, and then in 1995, and then when he dies in 2018, it's kind of a moving target, and it's a little hard to capture for the audience when he finally does die. So I'm definitely docking points for not including electrocolate acid test. But I don't know. I feel like the challenge here is so substantial, because I think a lot of people have no idea who this guy is. And there is something so complex and exciting about the first line of this obit that you want to read on and learn who he is. So it has my attention in a way that I'm going to give a pass and give it seven. You're being nice. We had the Betty White conversation just like three episodes ago when Jennifer was last on. Yeah. And we were like, oh, this is a gigantic, wide-ranging career, which they seem to kind of encapsulate pretty well. And here you are saying like, oh, this is a big job. I'm going to give him some extra points because it was hard. Are you docking me for not being consistent episode to episode on Famous and Gravy? (laughs) (laughs) if I opened that This is a mood-based show, sir. I would be destroyed. (laughs) I would be annihilated if we started doing that. Hey, I can't be consistent episode to episode. I I don't know who I'm Humanity is not consistent. I think that's the point of this. Exactly. It's it's in patterns and waves, but overall, there's detectable things. And I'm standing by my seven. Let's move on. Jennifer, before you leave us, I would love for you to give us one thing you love about Tom Wolf. Uh, as we move on to category two, five things I love about you. Here we come up with five reasons why we love this person, why we wanted to be talking about them in the first place. Jennifer, what do you got? I'm going super easy, at least to me, which is his writing style. We've already kind of touched on this, which tells me how important it was, right? It's like white suits and this particular style that he had. You know, I always call it kinetic, it's a very propulsive. It's exciting. Like I said, it captured my imagination when I was like a young adult. And it was also very freeing to see this guy doing this effectively. And I went like, oh, there's so much more I could be doing. I'm not going to go as far as he does. But I've always even felt like I become a little better writer. I become a little more exciting and adventurous just when I happen to be reading him. Because it's like, you know, his voice is so clear and it sticks in your head. And it made me kind of feel like, oh, I can do so much more. And I I can't think of a ton of writers who can really do that to a person who can actually kind of like change the way you think about what you do and give you a wider path to work with. For me, that was what was so inspiring about him. I didn't even know about the white suits at first. <laughs> you know, I only knew this. And he really captured, I think, you know, I don't know if it if he would say it came out of the time that he was like at the top of his game, but you know, you know, the sixties, it was like the perfect way to encapsulate kind of the way things were going haywire. And, um, I really dig that. And that is, I did really like Technicolor in the, um, obit and that's, that's what I would apply here too. 
So, but I mean, I guess when I'm hearing that, it's not just the specific style and and what he's doing sort of on a technical level. It sounds like to me, you're also talking about attitude, you know, like yes. what the mentality he gets into and the like, just like, I don't know, sense of freedom that he brings to the page when he does it. That's yeah. exactly right. And I, something I really respond to in writers is confidence. And this is definitely confident. He's doing a bunch of stuff you're not supposed to be doing. And he's like, this is the way it is. Like, I can't imagine like what conversations he did or did not have with editors. I would love to know. And to me, it leads into the entire rest of all everything I'm sure you all are going to talk about with his career, the ways that he would kind of write about whatever struck his fancy and he'd find all these cool stories to tell and take his time with them and do them right and do them big. And to me, that all goes together. Hmm. Jennifer, I have a question. So one thing about his writing style that's very different for me as a reader is when I've read his stuff, the voice that comes in my head is not my own. It's an outside narrator. And to whereas I read most novels or most things, I'm reading them, you know, in my head in my own voice. But the way that he uses all those punctuations and all those crazy ellipses or, or alternate caps or whatnot, it's like somebody else entirely is narrating it inside my head. I hadn't thought of it that way. But I think that that is a huge thing. It's like, presumably him, right? Yes, he is correct. actually, he's so distinctive that you, your brain knows that it's not you. It's a really weird way to say it. But um, you, your brain immediately gets that it's him. And all the books I have loved, I love a really strong voice. Some people don't. Some people don't like him at all for this reason. He's like big and present and there the whole time. And that was something that I really liked. And I loved the idea of getting a little closer to that, even if I don't go as big as he does. That's really well said. Well, Jennifer, you've given us a ton to talk about. Thank you again for coming on the show. It's so much fun to have you, and I'm sure we'll do it again soon. I appreciate thing number one, and uh, you weighing in on the open. Of course. This was so much fun, as always. A phrase pops into the head of Edward T. Toppington IV from out of nowhere. Everybody, all of them, it's back to blood. Religion is dying, but everybody still has to believe in something. So, my people, that leaves only our blood. La raza, as the Puerto Ricans cry out. The race, cries the whole world. All people, all people everywhere have but one last thing on their minds. Back to blood. In all of American letters, only one writer could have produced that passage. With us today, Tom Wolfe. Should we take this moment to describe Tom Wolfe a little more for those that he's new to? Yeah, I guess so. And how would you do this? I mean, well, I, I, that's why, that's why yeah. I brought it up because I think what Jennifer said is the perfect Andre to that. Mm, and okay. what he is known for and will probably go down in history for was kind of inventing this new style of writing, which was collectively called new journalism. And it's basically writing either journalism or nonfiction in the same style that you would write fiction. Yeah, right? write a so novel used, using novelistic techniques. Yeah. Correct. You take nonfiction things or typically journalistic things in which you are an observer and a describer, but you use, I read this once, you use the novelist's bag of tricks as things like scene-by-scene construction, use of dramatic dialogue, vivid characterization, shifting points of view, so on and so forth. So he was the pioneer of that. And with that, he was sort of crowned as the perfect describer of decades and movements and subcultures and genres for the 60s onward. 
this is called new journalism, and it's sort of an unfortunate term. Tom Wolf actually writes a book called New Journalism. I managed to get a copy at Half Price Books. You know, so I, I went down the new journalism rabbit hole a little bit. And, you know, I also, I referenced earlier the Michael Lewis article. You know, he sort of says, like, is new journalism a thing, or is it so ingratiated that we don't even need a term for it anymore? I do think that there is that impact on writers like Jennifer and others But is that what he's going to be remembered for? I mean, I actually think these books, uh, I don't think he's necessarily going to be remembered for a style so much as like the actual books themselves, if anything, you know? So if I'm going to put it as simply as possible, he made nonfiction fun. Yeah, I agree with that. And, And if you go and say like, who did he influence? The names you come up with are people like Michael Lewis, Chuck Klosterman, Malcolm Gladwell. I mean, there's a whole generation of popular writers who, you know, are kind of picking up the torch that was lit by Tom Wolfe and others associated with this idea of new journalism. But I guess, like, is that the reason to care about him and to do have him on Famous and Gravy? I mean, my personal bias was actually the same one Jennifer mentioned. I read Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test in my early 20s, and I thought, holy shit, What an incredible book. It just lit my brain on fire. It was so exciting, not just the story itself, but certainly the way it was told. And that led me to other Tom Wolfe books. But I don't know. I mean, why did you want to do this episode, Amit? He's as important of a figure as anybody else that we've done, especially in the entertainment category. Because he is in books, which is a a smaller microcosm of pop culture, but his actual contribution influence in everything that we see today and so many things going forward is equivalent to that of a Dick Clark or a Gary Shandling or a David Bowie or all of these people that we've covered. His style was just in something that's consumed less because books are hard and they're pain in the ass sometimes. Yeah, right. Not everybody reads. I mean, this is definitely a smarty pants kind of episode, perhaps, or risks being. I actually like that you brought that up a ton because I think he is a little bit of the anti-smarty pants. Uh, He is because he is a writer, yes. And so by default, you you write books for a living or you're an article writer. You are in this smarty pants genre. He's also a scholar. He's also a scholar. His PhD in American studies really matters here, I think. Correct. But he definitely is not in like highbrow literature. Yeah. You know, anybody is, can read him. Anybody can read him. He yeah. is he is essentially writing HBO series, but they just happens to be in books. Yeah, that's true. I agree with that. Well, all right. We've got four more things, supposedly. I'd love for you to take number two. Okay. So we talked about books, but I want to talk about words. So number two, he invented words. So he's credited with a lot of things of coming up with phrases that are used very commonly today. So the ones that are very often cited are Radical Chic, which was title of a collection of his essays. The Right Stuff, obviously the name of the movie, but that became a bit of a household phrase. Oh, that, yeah. That sort of, but it kind of went away. I think that that's... The Right Stuff? Oh, no. I think that's still kind of with us. I mean, it's a little bit of a throwback, but he's got the right stuff. I, I feel like if you hear that on the street, you know what it means. Yeah. Or you, you have an idea what it means. Yeah, it's yeah. not... It's not alien. Yeah. Okay, so, but now now my personal favorites. What he <laughs> invented, or at least claims to have invented or used for the first time, the phrase, good old boy. I saw Credited that. with yes. Tom Wolfe, used yeah. in a description of NASCAR in the 60s that he did. Uh, the phrase, balls out. Really? Uh, I didn't know that one. Was first used in really? electric Kool-Aid acid test. Still, I mean, 
fortunately or not, still widely used today. Credit with Tom Wolfe. Wow. Uh, and lastly, from Bonfire of the Vanities, forget about it. Yeah. Written yeah. as a one word with the F-U-H-G-G-E-D, this like New Jersey style forget, forget about, about it. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is a word he invented. What's forget about it? Forget about it. It's like uh, if you agree with someone, you know, like Raquel Welch's one great piece of ass, forget about it. But then if you disagree, like a Lincoln is better than a Cadillac, forget about it. But then it's also like if something is the greatest thing in the world, like Mingiro's peppers, forget about it, you know? <laughs> but it's also like saying go to hell, too. Hey, Bully, you got a one-inch pecker, and Bully says, forget about it. Forget about it. Bully, forget about it. <laughs> Sometimes it just means uh, forget about it. I love this minor invention. Uh, thing, yeah. you know, it's like, okay, I can, you can invent and you can spend your entire career being Elon Musk and leave with these inventions, or you can just come up with a few phrases that go and stick on forever. And I love that they were not his core product, but these are the things that may last for a long, long time. Good old boy may never go away. And I love that contribution of legacy because I think we're all doing it in some way. You know, we look at legacy and like what I create, what you created, what you invented, what you put out there. But you also, there's little things that are within your style and your way of speaking that carry on and whether they're in lexicon or mannerisms or whatnot. And they may be something that you uniquely use, but it's really your contribution into the universe. And I think it's a phenomenal thing to love because I think everybody does it in some way. Yeah, I agree with that. I do want to add three more that were left out. Pushing the envelope is something that astronauts would talk about. And uh, same thing with screwed the pooch is uh, uh, something that came from astronaut vernacular. The biggest one that you didn't mention is the me decade uh, to oh, yes, like label the 1970s. Anyway, I, so all of this is just additive to what you're saying. I wholeheartedly agree that it's something that we're doing all the time is sort of workshopping language, how we're describing the world, what phrases kind of catch on in, in one way. And I think you've used the phrase several times on our show, culture making. I mean, what you're really talking about is like, it's sense making and culture making in a way that I think is is an exciting thing to be doing in, in professionally or in our lives and is highly desirable. So uh, I couldn't agree more. And let me, um, let me add a data point to this. So uh, at last count, in the Oxford English Dictionary, there are 150 references to Tom Wolfe's work as explanations of words. Bravo. I love it. All right. I think I'm going to be a little bit simpler here. I'm going to say for my thing number three, I really like this job. Okay. You know, one of the things that's come up a lot on our show is actually – I don't want to be famous, not really, but there's still a kind of small part of me that does because I want validation and recognition and I'm just as flawed and human as the next person. So I don't actually want all the trappings that come with fame, but there is a part of us that still aspires for popularity and recognition, right? Something that I think over the previous 51 episodes is that I know I do want to be creative, and I think that there's a real tension with creativity and fame sometimes. Like whatever creative endeavor you might commit yourself to, acting or music, or even you know the creative art of politics or sports, I like those endeavors. I like those activities. I do desire those jobs a little bit, but I don't really want to be famous. I like this kind of fame. 
I like authorship fame. I like the anonymity and privacy that he was able to choose. He didn't because he wore these white suits all the time. But I also kind of like the culture making behind the scenes and a little bit hidden from view. So that's one part of the job. The other part of it is he engages in a lot of really different curiosity-driven projects. He hangs out with Ken Kesey, who wrote, you know, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and his gaggle of merry pranksters in the early 60s when LSD has taken off. That's an interesting scene. For Bonfire of the Vanities, he is on, you know, the bond trading floor. He visits Wall Street. He visits, you know, the courtroom. To go there and observe sounds like fun. Certainly, like, getting to know the astronauts uh, at Edwards Air Force Base and so on. Like, each of these projects has kind of fun attached to it and curiosity attached to it that, like, the day-to-day of the job looks pretty fun. I do think the hard part is actually writing. So I don't know that I love that piece of it. But in terms of making a career out of a creative endeavor, I like this job. Yeah, I think the way he did it, the word that I think you didn't use is immersive, right? So he would go and like live in these cultures and amongst them for weeks, months, years at a time in order to perfectly capture it to write either the nonfiction or fiction book. And so I think about it as like he gets to basically just live these several lives in one. It's equivalent to almost being a travel writer. You go there and you describe this place in which you have spent significant amount of time in and that other people have not seen. No one will argue like, hey, I'd love to be a travel writer. But to me, that's is exactly what Tom Wolf got to be. So that's my thing number three that I love about him. What do you got for number four? I am going to say the pivot. The subtle pivot from this invention of new journalism and writing nonfiction to what we talked about a lot with Jennifer was Bonfire of the Vanities in 1987. He became a fiction writer and from then on wrote novels. And I think there were four subsequent ones, all varying degrees of of success, but all pretty huge successes. So in 1987, at the age of him, he was almost 50 years old. He changes essentially his entire career. And I think to an outsider or to anybody, it seems like, okay, you're just, you're a writer and you continue to be a writer. But what he did was actually very drastically different. He completely changed what he did for a living at the age of near 60 years old and was wildly successful at it. And this is like, you know, this isn't to me exactly like Dylan goes electric. Like this is like Will Smith going from being the Fresh Prince to being Will Smith, which I think is awesome to be able to pull off that late stage in career. I think there's a couple of things that go into that as I read the story. One, this is very well documented. He had some pretty critical things to say about existing novelists. One of your, uh, the people you call um, the Three Stooges, uh, named John Updike. Not just John Updike, but also Norman Mailer uh, and John Irving. So this came at some risk to do something fiction. But he also does talk about it as being sort of journalistic in orientation, even if he's doing fiction, right? That he did spend time essentially reporting on Wall Street and on the criminal justice system in New York in the 80s in order to write Bonfire to the Vanities. The writing programs, where you get the masters of fine art and writing, um, always telling people to write what you know. And, And students interpret that to mean your own life. I'd be out with a cup if I had to write surely what's based on my own life. For the way I wanted to write a novel, I had to go out 
and do reporting just like the reporting that I did for the right stuff, uh, for the electric Kool-Aid acid test or anything else that I had written. So, okay, so what was the language exactly you used for your thing number four? I said the pivot. I think that's a good way of encapsulating it. And I think, like, in some ways it is a natural extension of previous things, but it is also a very new thing to have done, you know, at age 57. And incredible that I was successful at it. For my number five, I wrote down powers of observation. And I think that is absolutely part of what I love about this job. I think it also gets at what you said in terms of generating new language. But for me, I was also thinking about it more in the vein of sense-making. The only other profession that I can think of where powers of observation are so primary is comedians. One of the things we love about comics is how much they point out what's hiding in plain sight and make us laugh at the truth of what's evident and that what we should all recognize. I think that Tom Wolf is funny, and part of the reason he's described as a funny writer is just in like an ability to notice things that are hiding in plain sight. I really wish I had that more, to question, to pull back veils, to look at what people are doing, how people dress, how people are vying for status in any given situation. What the hell are you talking about, Michael? This is what, this is our show. Like, well, obviously you have some ability in that. Well, okay, fair enough. I I, I do think I'm, uh, uh, you're, you're right, and that was the most backhanded of backhanded compliments I've ever gotten. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I'll take it, you're right. But he could do it at scale. He could do it at a level of, Wow, how come nobody saw this before Tom Wolf saw it? You know, I think our show's great, man. But I do think that there's an incisiveness to his powers of observation that is just at a 10 out of 10 level that I admire and desire. Again, I can't hammer it into you enough. That's exactly like Tom Wolf is, if, if he is responsible for the same things that you said about Malcolm Gladwell and Michael Lewis and Chuck Klosterman, it's yeah. the same thing that he's responsible for this show. He's like us being able to take real non-fictional lives and retell them in a way that is entertaining and where you can pick up on subtleties to where you take that entertainment and you actually glean it in to something that's perhaps useful or beneficial to your own life. You dissect it yourself, but it's in the power of observation and the retelling of that story, which is what exactly we're trying to do right here, yeah. that Tom Wolf opened the door for. No, you're absolutely right. And as soon as you said it, I see it. Uh, all right, should we recap? Yes. All right, so thing number one from Jennifer was writing style and writing attitude, especially with confidence. Thing number two, you said... The invention of words. The invention of words. Thing number three, I wrote the job. Thing number four, you said... Career pivot. Career pivot. And thing number five, powers of observation, which we're working on in real time. <laughs> yes. All right. Category three. Malkovich, Malkovich. This category is named after the movie Being John Malkovich, in which people can take a little portal into John Malkovich's mind and have a front row seat to his experiences. This is kind of simple, but this is important to me, and in a funny way, I think, builds on what we were talking about before. 1964 is when Tom Wolfe takes an interest in Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters. By this point, Ken Kesey has written One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and sometimes a great notion, but he's also becoming more of an evangelist for LSD. Tom Wolfe goes out to meet him. They connect, and Tom Wolfe 
ends up following Neil Cassidy, Ken Kesey, the Merry Pranksters for about a month or so. And he's there in his white suit. And he very famously did not take LSD with the Pranksters. This has come up a lot. People have asked, did you uh, take acid with the Merry Pranksters? And he said, no. However, the book doesn't come out until 1968. And during that time, he does make the decision, if I'm going to do justice to this book, I need to know what LSD is all about. I'm going to give it a shot. He doesn't talk a lot about his personal experiences with it. I saw this in a few places, that he observed the intricate details and colors of a carpet, and it seemed to become significant and alive. The carpet appeared to be a complex tapestry of meaning and symbolism. You know, he did experience enhanced pattern recognition. I think that the way he represents LSD in the early 60s as the and the youth movement and what will come to be a kind of almost new religion, at least as it's described in the electric Kool-Aid acid test, he's, he's really balanced in a way in, in terms of not being judgmental and not signing off on it if you go back and read the electric Kool-Aid acid test. And it's interesting to me that he's able to report on the way that LSD is affecting all of these young people. And then he takes it himself. There's no way it wasn't a profound experience, but I feel like he also is able to maintain some sort of distance and, I don't know, objectivity, for want of a better term, in terms of why LSD is so unbelievably important to these Northern Californians and to the youth movement overall. I want to know what's actually going on in his mind when he's tripping. I want to know what he's go- what's going on. I want, I want to know how he's reflecting on his memories of spending time with the Merry Pranksters, what else he's looking at in his own life. I mean, LSD is such an unbelievably difficult experience to describe, but it's almost always profound. He does it out of journalistic curiosity, but I want to know how that did or did not affect him. Because the way he treats his own personal relationship to LSD is almost doesn't say anything about it. And it's kind of remarkable if you go back and read that book. Yeah, because the, I mean, although so much of the book is about like this, about how this subculture saw this, saw LSD as this huge transformative thing. Awakening, right? This grand awakening that was like about to descend upon America. And in some ways, it literally changed the trajectory of the universe. You know, how does he see that? Like, what, what it's, what's his take on LSD? He haven't done it himself. He, he doesn't talk about it much. He draws a lot of lines around his life. So if there's one time where I want in, it's, it's this one. To me, this is part of the enigma of Tom Wolfe. And this is where, you know, we can get into to, to just stop the love fest a little bit. It's like, there's, there's not much letting in of himself, yet his entire career and job is exposing the inner thoughts of other people in the rest of the population and subcultures and trends. Yeah, it's voyeuristic. It's intrusive. Part of the reason to use novelistic and, you know, techniques of of, of literary techniques in reporting is to do exactly that, to get inside. Correct. Right. And, and the and most he just you can, had a lot. Yeah. yeah. And the most you can do is gleam his own his own viewpoint from the way that he writes subjectively about other ones. But there is there is very little letting in of himself. Yeah. And like I mean, I I dug 
deep, deep, deep. And yeah. I, I found some things, and I found some nuggets that, that will continue to come up throughout this episode. But it's uh, this, this was a harder excavation than a lot of the other people we've done. Amen to that. I read, I produced through like four or five different books and watched a lot of tape and had like harder than most to to get inside and to try and like really imagine it. So my Malkovich is really one born out of personal curiosity. I want to know what he's thinking when he's tripping. All right, my Malkovich. So uh, just a couple years after, I believe it was 1969. So we've referred a few times in this episode to radical chic, which um, is a phrase. It was also uh, in essay and then later a collect a book which was a collection of essays the phrase basically refers to this idea of left-wing liberal people taking up social causes but in tom wolf's view it's he finds it somewhat hypocritical because they are these sort of park avenue rich people trying to relate to something far beyond themselves. Yeah, it's almost virtue signaling, right? I mean, that's what I read into Radical Chic as, a, as an idea. It's, it's not virtue signaling exactly, but but it's sort of like association with, you know, a radical point of view from the position of extreme of, privilege. Yeah, right? pri- yeah, exactly. From privilege, elitism, from money. Let's leave it that simple. Yeah. Like, yeah. A, it's, it's siding with the underrepresented from a position of money. The main essay of Radical Chic was about a party that Leonard Bernstein, who was the director of the New York Philharmonic, threw uh, as a fundraiser for the Black Panthers. So the Malkovich moment I have is how Tom Wolfe got to cover that story. So he is dating a girl named Sheila, later to be his wife. Um, but this is 1969, uh, very early on in their relationship. She is working at Harper's Magazine as a graphic designer. He goes to the Harper's office to just pay a visit, and he is walking around, and I, I guess she's not there, and he comes upon uh, the office of this guy named David Halberstam. Who's who a famous this, journalist, yeah. Yeah, Pulitzer I, yeah. Prize-winning journalist. Yeah. And he was like, okay, I'm just going to go walk into David's office and, you know, introduce myself, have a chat. David's not there, so he just walks in anyway, you know. And on David's desk is an invitation to this Leonard Bernstein fundraiser for the Black Panthers. And so he looks at it and he's kind of like, huh, that's really weird that like Leonard Bernstein, this, you know, famed white tuxed composer is throwing a fundraiser for the Black Panthers. And so he picks up the invitation, which was not his own, calls the number to RSVP on it and says, hey, this is Tom Wolfe. Thank you for the invitation. I'll be there. And gets um, his name on the list. Gets his name on the list, attends a party, writes this transformative essay, which later becomes a phrase and further catapults his career. So the Malkovich moment is is the sheer audacity and courage to pick up that invitation in an office that you're not even supposed to be in and then dial the phone and invite yourself to the party. So what I like is just the the courage and the audacity to take it into his own hands. And this isn't a gross, you know, violation of anything. He's just saying, I see something, as you say, powers of observation. I see this weird contradiction on a paper in front of me and immediately not much thinking behind. I'm taking this into my own hands and I'm going. Would you ever do that? I mean, I just, I have a hard time imagine, see an invitation where maybe they don't know it's who I am. I'm just going to say, yes, I'm coming. I don't think I do. And that's why I want to I want to be behind it. I want to see where like that that hunger, that confidence, that self-esteem, what that's all like behind it. 
Uh, and the second thing I like about it from a Malkovich point, I just like the benign mischief of it. Yeah, it's yeah, so yeah, like, yeah, there's yeah, so yeah, much yeah. vitality you to know what, that. You know, I'm going to go to the Leonard Bernstein Black Panthers party. Yeah, this I mean, it's harmless. Good. I'm not I'm not robbing a bank. I'm not hard, hurting anyone, but I'm going to go crash this black tie event that I'm not really invited to, and then I'm going to use it for journalistic reasons. Uh, so that is my Malkovich. Inviting yourself to the party. It is from someone else's office and their phone in which you shouldn't have even been in the first place. I mean, it's a real metaphor, too, of course. Like, I belong at this party. I'm going to invite myself. I'm going to crash this party because I should yeah. be there. Right? I'm increasingly loving it the more that you, like, repeat it in a first person. <laughs> There's got to be a gala this weekend that I can just crash, right? I'm sure we can find some. Okay. Let's pause for a word from our sponsor. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Michael, are you proquarian? <laughs> no, sir. I am antiquarian. What does it mean to be antiquarian? That means relating to or dealing in antiques or rare books, which is why I am an antiquarian. Oh, because you like collecting rare books. Absolutely. And where do you find them? You just go to flea markets and scavenge the internet? Absolutely not. I go to half-price books. They have all kinds of both new and used books. It's not like you're only getting the old stuff at half price books. They also have new, fresh books. You know, right, right, off, right, <laughs> off, right out of the oven. Including bestsellers. Including bestsellers. Right off the press. Right off the press. Half Price Books is the nation's largest new and used bookseller with 120 stores in 19 states. Half Price Books is also online at hpb.com. Okay, category four, love and marriage. How many marriages? Also, how many kids? And is there anything public about these relationships? One marriage to Sheila, mentioned earlier, they were married in 1978. Tom is 47 at that point. Yes. She is a graphic designer at Harper's. They're married about 40 years. Two kids, one boy, one girl, who are now adults. 
That's all I want to say because everybody is very private here. Sheila goes out of her way to avoid the limelight. I think it seems like the children do as well. I saw somewhere that uh, I think the daughter is a, is a novelist now or a, a, is a journalist as well. Anyway, this is one of those where it's like people really don't want information out there, so I'm not going to dig any deeper. The main thing I want to talk about is, holy cow, starting a family at age 47. That's what I, I don't think he even started the family at 47. I think he got married at 47. Got married at 47. A, I think he was a 50s dad. I think he was a yeah. dad in his 50s. Yeah. Because that's very I, Clooney. I don't think this has come up before in our show. Not in anybody who was a like, first-time dad in their 50s. So I don't know. What do you want to talk about here? I, I think this is a very important live question is that a lot of people, the argument you hear a lot is like, I want to have kids, you know, by the time I'm 35, you know, because I want to be able to like go to their soccer practice and play around with them and stuff. But I, I mean, I just question the validity of that point that you don't have enough energy to raise children into your 50s and 60s. And David Letterman talks about this a lot. Like he was like, oh, I just like my biggest regret is I didn't have children earlier. I waited till I was like 65 and now I'm an old creaky man. And uh, maybe he was on the older end of that. But I don't think that's reason enough. Well, I don't know. Let me weigh in on that. My first kid was born, I guess, when I was age 35. I'm in the kind of middle to slightly older zone for other parents who have children of similar age. And the reason I say it that way is that I do think that that's part of the thing that I didn't appreciate is your kids will bond up with other children and you don't have much say over who those kids are. I've been really lucky in that my children, for the most part, have uh, chosen friends whose parents I really like. Um, but but I do think that like that that becomes an important part of your social life in a way that I think that's part of I think what goes into it. It's not just can I still you know chase a frisbee in a park when they're teenagers? I'll be in my fifties or sixties by then. I think that's part of it. But it's also the social life that is attached to the commitment of parenthood that uh, that I think is, is I don't know, sometimes talked about, sometimes not. Um, Let's make it about me then, Michael. I uh, was waiting, I'm this is what and, I was waiting for. Because yeah. I'm 45 and I don't have kids and I don't know if I will have kids. I may, right. I may not. Yeah. And so on the one hand, you're saying, yes, go ahead and do it. This is a lesson from Tom Wolfe. On the other hand, it says, prepare to have a bunch of 32-year-old, like, dads as your friends. What's the question? I don't understand. What is the question? What's the what's the takeaway at Tom of Tom Wolf being an old dad? If I'm going on the scant data that is available about it, we know that he becomes a dad at an older age than a lot of people, and we also it sounds like he really enjoyed it and was in on it. That's probably enough for me if part of what we're doing on this show is looking at the desirability of a life and trying to come up with examples of people who have made decisions that we do and do not find desirable. I like that we have this example here. The same way I liked in Gary Shandling that he never uh, married. Uh, yeah. The same way that I like, frankly, in Maya Angelou that she chose to be sort of solid into her older age as a woman. Yeah, it, Roger it, Ebert, Alex Trebek, Betty White even. All yes. step-parents only. I think we need these examples and to need and, and to need to be able to say, that's cool. That looks good. From what you can tell and what you've told us about it and what we know about it, it looks good. It's hard to say much more than that because the sense of privacy for the family is so strong. That said, I'm glad that we now have this example to add to the mix of other famous figures that we've talked about on the show. 
I think that's right. And I think you actually, I think, I think you, you worked it out properly and that there are examples everywhere. You can see yourself in any situation and still find a life you want or one you don't. And let me add to that. I think it's important for you and I to be able to say, well, this person did it and it looked okay. I think it's also, for so many people, such a big looming question, especially earlier in life. Are you going to get married? Are you going to have kids? There's all this cultural pressure and sociological pressure to do exactly that. that By these a examples, certain time. By a certain time. Exactly. On, on the clock. Fucking A. So I think it's important to have these examples. I'm glad we can add this to the mix. Frankly, not a whole hell of a lot more to be said, I don't think. Thank you, Mr. Wolf. <laughs> All right, category five, net worth. 20 million, did you see that too? Yes. Higher than I expected. It was about what I expected, honestly. I did, I, I did a little digging. You such a better read on this. Why am I so the fuck off? Okay, what did you find? There wasn't a ton of money in any of the early works prior to Bonfire of the Vanities. Right. Even Bonfire of the Vanities itself was not expected to be such the hit it was. So yeah. that the movie that it became, that terrible movie, uh, there, there was a Tom Hanks terrible movie. Tom um, Hanks, Bruce Willis, Melanie Griffith. Famous flop, yes. Yes, famous flop, famous disappointment. Uh, he was paid only 750 k for the movie rights. The book, though, did so well that by the time he did his next novel, which was A Man in Full, it was so highly anticipated that his advance alone for that was $7.5 million. Oh, wow. And okay. he was paid... $3 million for movie options, which has still not even been exercised. So there we've got $10 million explained right now, and this is in 1990s money, right? Yeah. In 2010, a museum paid $2.5 million just for Tom Wolfe's documents. So these were not his manuscripts of his works and all. These are literally his boarding passes and his sketches and notebooks yeah. and so forth. Yeah. So there is, after Bonfire of the Vanities was written, he was a highly, highly compensated individual. Yeah. Uh, and so 20 million seems dead well, right to me. His profile as an author and the options that went with that is money source alone. The right stuff, of course, was also made into a movie, which I think is his best adapted work. There's another totally. one people point to, but right stuff is a great little movie. The right, Yeah, the right stuff was nominated for best picture. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I like the number and it it's pretty pretty nice. You know, it's a nice number. The other thing we're starting to explore, which I've heard from listeners, is uh, they, they like it when we talk about what we can learn about this person's relationship to money. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I was able, I did do some digging. I did find what Tom Wolf had to say about it. And he was asked uh, this money, for example, this seven and a half million that he was given for Man in Full, if uh, this is too much money for a writer. And he says, yes, it is, but I'm not going to give it away. Uh, he goes, it is what kept Dickens going full tilt. So in other words, what he's saying is like, this is not an easy job. This is a slog. And this should be rewarded like other popular arts. And, you're going to feel uh, and he's also pointing Complicated the about the compensation, in other words. Yeah. yeah, he's also a pretty conservative guy who doesn't, it, like, isn't very well into charities, hence go back the clock 50 years to when he wants to exploit these people raising money for the Black Panthers. Um, so yeah, he, he was proud of his money, and he thought it's a lot for what he did, but he felt like he deserved it. All right, 20 million. Good number. Category six, Simpsons, Saturday Night Live, or Halls of Fame. This category is a measure of how famous a person is. We include both guest appearances on SNL or The Simpsons as well as impersonations. 
there's some surprising stuff here. I found five different mentions of Tom Wolfe on SNL, four of which were on Weekend Update. The other thing, though, SNL was that surprised me, he was actually parodied by Joe Piscopo in the fifth season in 1980. I couldn't find the actual clip on YouTube, but apparently it exists. So he was that level of famous, which is sort yeah. of hard to believe, right, on SNL. There's also in The Simpsons, uh, season 18, episode six. Tom Wolfe, he uses more exclamation points than any other major American writer. It's true. Uh, how you doing there, Ramosis like? Ah, magnificent Mo. He stands, stoop-shouldered, blinking in the light, hollow-chested like a dough-faced fall guy who's made a career of taking dives, but has decided to get his manhood out of hock and take a shot at the title, or at least go for the jaw and thwack, hyper-extend the champ's terrigordius before kissing the mat goodnight. So I think that's a little surprising that he shows up on both The Simpsons and SNL. There is, however, no Hollywood star. That's not too surprising. He's not really a Hollywood figure. No appearance on Arsenio Hall. He did, however, uh, win the Booker Prize for The Right Stuff, and he also does have a National Humanities Medal, which he got in 2002. So kind of more famous than you would think. I think that there's a lot of people under 40 who have never heard of him and maybe never will. But then again, I wonder, because I do think some of these books will be assigned, and they'll be good, like, you'll be glad that they were assigned in an English class. The Lecture Kool-Aid Acid Test and The Right Stuff, Bonfire of the Vanities, I think all of them are, like, worthy of a syllabus in college. Yeah, I think he's as he's as famous as that a writer of his type can be, and perhaps disproportionately famous. And yeah. I think some of the things like the white suit and these, like the fact that he was so definitively associated with like predicting and defining cultures made him a very interesting person to to parody, right? I also think like you have the people in the writer's rooms of The Simpsons and the SNL, and they're exactly the type to be like Tom Wolf fans. Totally, yeah. I mean, this is like kind of, you know, East Coast, uh, you know, Ivy League. Um, yeah, writers, and I think right. that that plays well into like this disproportionate level of fame that you then you would expect. But yeah. he was also, I don't know if you found the Letterman super clip, he was on Letterman at least three times. The new vice in America in the 1970s was pornography. So-called X-rated adult uh, films, and, and including places with screens that would be seven, eight, nine stories high, outdoor drive-ins, the yeah. better to beam all of these uh, glistening nodes and moistened folds and stiffened giblets to a panting American <laughs> country countryside. Uh, but uh, that was the 70s. There was a, a proliferation of that then. The magazines that were so hot in the age of pornography, the one-hand magazines like uh, Penthouse or, or Playboy, uh, things of that sort. <laughs> Tom, um, you're, you're using phrases that I don't fully understand. Well, but that, maybe if you could simplify well, it for they, the layman, well, these, so these to speak. Are, these are... <laughs> These are technical journalistic terms, yeah. but uh, uh... you know, I think he was also just a man of the time at the right time. I'm just not sure we have those same modern day equivalents that would be on Letterman or parodied on The Simpsons and all who are writers. One thing we haven't talked about yet is also, and I, I, I guess this goes in the fame category. This whole new journalism movement. I mean, who he's associated with and the characters he you know, brings into that new journalism phenomenon include people like Truman Capote, um, Joan Didion, Hunter S. Thompson. 
I found this great quote from Hunter S. Thompson because yeah, because Tom Wolf points to Hunter S. Thompson as part of the new journalist movement. Hunter S. Thompson, for people who don't know, was a pioneer of gonzo journalism, Rolling Stone journalist who did a lot of drugs, wrote Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. He wrote to Tom Wolf once and said, quote, <laughs> you thieving pile of albino warts, I'll have your goddamn femurs ground into bone splinters if you ever mention my name again in connection with that horrible new journalism shuck you're promoting. But they were Tom, still buddies. They were buddies. Tom, Tom Wolf has a couple of Hunter S. Thompson stories. Like every time we met, it was a story. So I invited him to dinner. So the waitress turns to Hunter and he says, I want four banana daiquiris and four banana splits. And that's what they bring him. He downs the four banana daiquiris. He eats the four banana splits. And then he calls over the waitress and he goes like this, do it again. <laughs> well, the long and the short of it was, uh, they threw us all out, uh, <laughs> my wife and me. <laughs> and, uh, uh, we were accomplices, I guess. <laughs> I got another one. He comes into the restaurant. He's got this bag. Hunter, what's in the bag? Hunter says, I've got something in here that will clear out this restaurant. What's in the bag, it turns out, is a marine distress signal. Hunter says, this thing can travel 20 miles across water. He blows it, and the restaurant clears out. Now, to Hunter, that was an event. Anyway, I love the Hunter S. Thompson, Tom Wolf friendship. Um, yeah. Do you remember who else Hunter S. Thompson was friends with that we did an episode on? Jerry Jeff Walker. Oh, of course. Yes, that makes all the sense in the world. So overall, more famous than you would think. I wonder how, you know, where we're going to be in 20 years, you know, with how Tom Wolf is remembered. I do think that a lot of the writers I mentioned earlier, Gladwell, Michael Lewis, Klosterman, and others, those people still play an important role in in life in terms of culture making. And I think that there will be scholars who are interested in this kind of legacy. Whether or not he remains a familiar name, I think is questionable. I don't think so. I think that's the nature of just where the author is in yeah. this point in history. You know, even Joan Didion, which was a gigantic name yeah. uh, not too long ago, is barely remembered. The and one I, case I, I, I would I, make, though, is I do think that some of this psychedelic renaissance that we're in right now does have people interested in the electrical aid acid test in kind of a new way. As we understand the role of psychedelics in mental health and in modern society, I think what happened in the 60s will remain an important story, and that book informs that story and captures it in the way it got out of the lab. So, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, valid point. But it's funny yeah. if, that's, if that's the reason for his shelf life. Yeah. Well, and that's why they missed it in the obit, and we docked in points for it. Yeah, good. Okay. Validation. All right. Category seven, over under. In this category, we look at the generalized life expectancy for the year somebody was born to see if they beat the house odds and as a measure of grace. So life expectancy for a man born in the U.S. in 1930 was 58 years. He died age 88, so he beat it by 30 years. I think extremely graceful. Um, yes. I think that may be like next level grace. I mean, we're, we're talking Maya Angelou grace here. Yeah, good-looking, articulate until the end. He was still publishing up until 
2016, I think, doing interviews yeah. all the it, way through there. Yeah, I saw an interview with him and Preet Bharara, which was really interesting. Actually. Yeah, I listened to that one. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. It was like the 30-year anniversary of Bonfire of the Vanities. It's right, right, right. He did have a pretty major heart attack at the age of 73 that required a quadruple bypass. Oh, wow. And it did sort of renew a sense of gratitude in him. I saw the interview, which I believe was on 60 Minutes, that he said that like after surviving that, he appreciated things and specifically connection infinitely more after that. That grace that could have fed into it was this near-death experience that he had almost 15 years before he died. Okay, let's pause for another break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Danielle Steele. Oh, (laughs) alive. The rules are simple. Dead or alive. Danielle Steele is still with us at 74 years old. Dick Cavett. I think Dick Cavett is dead. Uh, Incorrect. Dick Cavett is still with us at 85 years old. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Test your knowledge. Deadoralive.app.com. Okay, category eight. This is where we get into the more introspective questions. The first of these categories, man in the mirror. What did they think about their own reflection? I guess we have been saving the white suit discussion until now. I started wearing them by accident. I had just arrived in New York. I'd always wanted to come here to work on a newspaper. I finally got a job. So anyway, I bought this. I bought a white suit uh, for the summer. All of a sudden, in 1965, I had a book coming out. It was a collection of articles, The, the Candy Color, the Tangerine Flake, Streamline Baby. And I was still working as a daily reporter on the New York Herald Tribune. And people were coming to interview me. And I didn't, I couldn't handle it. I didn't, I was just tongue-tied. I, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be interviewing you. And to my amazement, I read the article, and then essentially it said, what a colorful man. He wears white suits. Uh, I realized I had a substitute for a personality, uh, and, and, and still do. I mean, uh, these white suits have been worth their weight in gold. <laughs> One of the things I find interesting is that he's a journalist but doesn't try to blend in, and he actually goes the other ways. Like, the, the effort to try and blend in, he learned this working with the pranks, Mary Pranksters, would have been hilarious. He would have come off as fake and inauthentic. Totally. And so he, it's, he said, it's better appear like I'm coming from Mars or something. Like, like just a weirdo. Somehow he was ignored for being, you know, kind of flamboyant in terms of his appearance, which yeah. I think is kind of... Uh, it, I don't know. It's a clever technique. His commitment to the bit is extraordinary. Yes. That he owned something like 30, um, you know, three-piece white suits. That it, it really does sound like that's what he wore 
whether he was being photographed or not. The the origin of it was, you know, he's a Southern guy. He's from Richmond. And when he had started his professional career, he just said that that's what in, in Richmond, that's what people wore in the summer. And the first white suit that he got happened to be very thick and thick enough to keep him warm in the winter. And he's like, this is great. I'm just going to keep it. I'm just yeah. going to keep going. And and got remarked upon, and he decided that yeah to, to rock it. I okay. So to the man in the mirror question, you know, I actually wrote. I think he falls into the category where I don't think he thinks about it too much. This came up in the Yogi Berra episode, episode very early on. I I, I do think he's somebody. I don't think he spends a lot of time studying the mirror. I think the white suit does give him some distance. It's an outfit that's almost so striking that I get to be me underneath this external outfit. So I do feel like it's a it's a sort of separation from man in the mirror identity. I, I guess based on that, I'm a kind of lean no. He doesn't like his reflection. I also think he's quite dapper. But that's that's all I've got on this. What what's your thinking here? He is definitely dapper. He is Roger Moore style dapper. Um yeah, so I, I've got a couple of views on this. So the white suit, he has said, eventually just became a stand-in for persona, that he wasn't required to have a public persona anymore because his tailor did it for him, because he just became known as the writer in the white suit. And so I think it also extended kind of into the rest of his appearance, is that, you know, what people are going to notice is what I'm wearing, not so much, you know, the rest of my features and the rest of really, like, my body that contains my soul in front of the mirror. And so the same way that he used it as a stand-in for persona, I think he also used it as a bit of a stand-in for self-esteem and having to to sort of appraise himself in the mirror. But I think he liked that stand-in. You know, he was he was a good-looking man. He was a, a good-looking man, like, well into his into late age. Um, he was very fit. He was a former athlete. You know, he played college baseball. I mean, he's professorial in a lot of ways. The fact that he has a Yale PhD is not surprising to me. And I, I think that sometimes when he's talking, I almost see, this sounds judgmental, but I don't know another word, there is almost a sniveling quality to him. Formal dress lives on usually on the backs of uh, doormen and elevator men. And the, and the tenants uh, looked like uh, refugees from a bad film. <laughs> Personally, it displeases me uh, a great deal. I think there's a, a, a real purpose to uh, formality. There's a real purpose to telling people how you expect to be uh, treated. I think he does like himself a lot. Yeah. Um, I just he's think- confident. He's confident. He's confident. There's no yeah. question. Yes. Yeah, but I think he hides behind the white suit in order yeah. to avoid, like, very deep self-appraisal. Yes, I agree with that. So does he like his reflection or not, Amit? I'm saying yes, but I'm saying it's also extremely ironic because here's a guy that dissects yeah. humanity and characters and culture, but I don't think he's doing a ton of it himself. This is why I want to know what he's like on acid. I really want it. I want that <laughs> yeah, Malkovich makes moment. sense. All right. Category nine, outgoing message, like man in the mirror. How do we think they felt about the sound of their own voice when they heard it on an answering machine or outgoing voicemail? And would they have used the default setting or recorded their outgoing message themselves? I wrote, I don't think he likes his voice for the simple reason that he's, he's not a great talker. He's, he's a little slow, and I think part of it is he's such an unbelievably confident writer, 
And yeah. sometimes those skills go together and sometimes they don't. This has come up when we've talked about singers, right? Sometimes mm-hmm. singers are really confident about their singing voice, but that may or it's totally uncorrelated. It's totally unpredictable whether or not that same confidence applies to their speaking voice. I think the same is true with writers sometimes. I've met writers who are great talkers. I've met writers who are like one thing on the page and a totally different thing in conversation. And I see that division here. So I, I don't think he likes his voice particularly. Uh, I don't imagine he would want to leave his voice on his outgoing voicemail. I don't think he would either. I think he's an anti-elitist elitist. Yes. Like they, there was often things, Hunter um, S. Thompson, I believe, said it himself that um, he used to call Tom Wolfe's house and it, the maid would always pick up. You know, and, right? and perhaps that was the equivalent of uh, of voicemail back then. I, I think I disagree with you a little bit about the quality of his voice and whether he liked it. So I, I think there was a a um, a gradual improvement in it. I know that I read that he like anytime he had to give a speech or whatever, he would write out every single word at the beginning. But he gradually got better. And even as I look at these like Letterman interviews from the '80s and '90s, like I see pretty confident, pretty articulate, pretty joke and pretty funny too. So I think he liked it and I think he was a pretty good orator and he just got better at it. When I was working on the bonfire of the vanities and I, I went up to uh, the Bronx mm-hmm. to get a picture of kind of the lower end of the social scale. This is just the way people look at things. Yeah, not the way, you know, it's... But you have someone to help you get home, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, the first thing I saw, there were groups of boys who were wearing uh, necklaces, and hanging from these necklaces were uh, silvery rings. And inside these silvery rings were upside-down Ys. And I thought these were peace symbols. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this is great. Yes. This, in this deprived neighborhood, these boys are so concerned about the future of the planet and the threat of nuclear destruction that they're wearing these right. peace symbols. And I looked a little closer, and these turned out to be uh, Mercedes-Benz hood ornaments. <laughs> <laughs> I think we do have... A disagreement on uh, on whether on he liked his voice, whether he liked it, and the confidence. I think we do agree on the uh, unadmitted arrogance. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, category ten: regrets, public or private. What we really want to know is what, if anything, kept this person awake at night. I got a few things. There was this feud that he had with John Irving, John Updike, and Norman Mailer that basically, like, it sounds like, pretty much took it to the grave. I'm not sure he regretted it, but I yeah, want to just kind of bring it Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I don't see the regret in that. But that's not, I mean, the thing is, like, and we haven't really talked about this enough with him. He's a rabble rouser, man. And, and I do think that he, like any good journalist, is willing to sort of get into a fight and pick a fight. And one of the things he learned, he, he talks about this early in his career, is that, I don't know if you followed this story, this whole thing he wrote that was really critical of the New Yorker and sparked all these fights with New Yorker writers at the time. He was critical of like a lead editor. But what he discovered is like, oh, that nothing really came of that. These fights don't matter all that much. And he's willing to sort of like throw rocks and piss people off. And he's more or less at peace with that. I mean, that's actually when it came to this category, regrets, I didn't find anything quite the opposite. I almost look at his life and been like, shouldn't you have had some regrets? 
Somewhere, that was exactly I mean, my take. Is like this guy needs more regrets. Like the, yeah. the, the hypocrisy that's prevalent. Kind of an asshole in some places, right? I mean, I like him. I love his writing style. I think you have to have that kind of confidence to be the kind of author he is. There was an article by Leonard Bernstein's daughter that really caught my attention. What she was critical of was how the piece affected her mother. Like Leonard Bernstein, okay, kind of famous as far as composers go, but he was traveling a lot. Her mother, Leonard Bernstein's wife, caught a lot of the flack from that radical chic article in a way that felt like kind of unfair. And and to hear Leonard Bernstein's daughter tell the story, sort of like, hey, asshole, did you see what you did here? There are consequences to these kinds of, you know, adventurous articles you're writing, Tom. Yeah, especially the attack style ones, yeah. which, you know, I think Acid Test and some of the other ones weren't, but certainly the the Radical Chic and the... Well, and there was there was one against, like, the art world. There was <laughs> there was a, a book that was, like, really directed at, like, architects. I mean, he... Yes, he, thank I, you. I think your phrase earlier, anti-elitist elitist, is really right on the money because he comes from high society. I do think a lot of his attacks, or if you want to call them that, are directed at elitist institutions. And I'm kind of on board with a lot of them because they do feel a little bit like punching up or punching sideways. But occasionally, I wonder if he's punching down a little bit. He doesn't appear self-reflective about that. He feels, if anything, arrogant. And, you know, I don't know. We don't have a specific category dedicated to undesirable qualities. But there is a part of me that wishes he was a little bit more self-reflective about that. I mean, one thing I also thought about for the regrets category is he does, at some point, he goes after neuroscientists and evolutionists about theory of language stuff. There's yes. a couple of like throwing rocks at um, scientists where I'm like, who the fuck are you? You don't know anything about this. Or maybe you know something. But he, he's smart and successful enough that he does feel a kind of license to wade in on any topic whatsoever at, at a point that, I don't know, I, I don't think that there's a ton of humility. All right, let's move on. Category 11. Good dreams or bad dreams? This is not about personal perception, but rather, does this person have a haunted look in the eye? Something that suggests inner turmoil, inner demons, or unresolved trauma? I got no evidence whatsoever. I looked into this a little bit. He does talk a little bit about up at late at night with writer's block. I think that there's a kind of preoccupation with the subject that I think is running through his very intelligent mind as he's trying to work himself to sleep late at night on the bed, head hits the pillow. Insomnia versus good dreams, bad dreams, are those the same question? I, I don't know. I think pretty good because he is, I think, born with a surf, certain kind of self-assuredness and gets that validation in his career in a way that I think I'm inclined to say, yes, he sleeps well. But it's on the bubble there. You can make a case either way for me on this one. He definitely does. I think there's a rigidity about him that should be examined more, and that's what we're doing right now. But I don't think he did it, and I think that's a clear head that uh, rests peacefully every night. He has clarity, and that clarity is perhaps due to denial, but I think he's got it. All right, let me ask this random-ass question. Do you think you ever saw a therapist? Uh, no. I kind of don't either. Right? And he's an atheist. He describes himself as a lapsed Presbyterian. He took LSD once that we know of in 1966. My point with all of this is like, sometimes I think we need to be looking for evidence of self-reflection, and I'm not seeing it in most places. He does not turn this gaze inward all that what's, much. What's so bad about it? 
I don't care who you are, man. I believe we've all got an inner conflict that we're tr- that we're wrestling with, and and I think that sometimes the gaze does need to be turned inward. Otherwise, you have blind spots in who you are and what kind of harm you may be causing. This article I mentioned about Leonard Bernstein's daughter, that's one of many examples. There are people who he pissed off. There's no question about that. And I don't see anything other than, well, that's my job as his uh, accountability for it. That is arrogant. I'm looking for a little bit of, you know, did he reckon with? We both agreed there were not enough regrets in the regret category. So, I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't hold them to kind of new age standards here, but I, I, I wonder. I just I, I believe that that inner conflict exists in everybody, and I don't think it can all come out in creative works, you know, on the page. And something looks bottled up to me. So I don't know. Now that I've said that, bad dreams. This son of a bitch had bad dreams. I think they coexist. I, I think I think he has good dreams because of the absence, perhaps that you suggest of the looking inwards. Yeah. But if Maybe he only did it, he may have had too. some bad rooms. I mean, this is a soul question, Michael. This is you know we use the word quality of life currently, and so quality of life, you know, all of those outward signs, but the actual soul. I don't know. I think that's what we're debating here is that you may be able to sleep well, you may be wealthy, and you may, you know, have mostly notoriety with even going back to what Jennifer said, a lot of people hated him, not just his writing, but we know we have evidence about other people that just hated him. But if you don't internalize that, is that a bad thing? And I think what you're saying is you don't, like, for you it is. Or at least acknowledge that somebody else's point of view could have some validity to it. I, I I don't see him necessarily to my satisfaction, reckoning with his critics. I think he does a little bit of it, but I feel like there's more defense mechanisms than there is sort of honest accounting. Yep, fair enough. And I'm going to change my answer in this next category. Category 12, cocktail, coffee, or cannabis. This is where we ask, which one would we most want to do with our dead celebrity? This may be a question of what sounds like the most fun to partake with this person, or another philosophy is that a particular kind of drug might allow access to a part of them we are most curious about. I initially wrote coffee for trite reasons, for for boring reasons, that often when somebody's really smart, I just want to have a cup of coffee and learn with them. I'm actually, as this conversation's gone on, become a lot more curious about his inner life, genuinely curious about his inner life. I think I need to have some cocktails with this man. Maybe gin and tonic. I could do a gin and tonic with Tom Wolfe. I need to see some cracks in the armor, and I need to get him drunk enough so that I can... I can look into the eyes and get an answer to some of these questions. Because there's a lot I do still like. There's a lot I do still find desirable about his life. And maybe there is some more reckoning and personal accounting than what I'm giving him credit for. And maybe it's just, you know, I don't see it because he was so private, which is fair. But that's totally fair. But I want to know. So I've got curiosity here. So I don't want coffee anymore. Throw the coffee out, Tom. Dump it down. <laughs> well, it's better. It's a white brain. suit for crying out loud. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's find something that won't Good. stay. I, 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 I like that you twisted on that, and I and I agree with you. Like I'm, I'm very curious about the inner life of this guy yeah. now, especially as this conversation's gone on. I did say coffee. I'm going to stick with it because you've covered the territory. But I'll because I'm going to explain why I want coffee because this man was so good at summarizing. Summarizing people, summarizing trends, summarizing characteristics. I don't know what the hell I am. Like, I'm just, I'm in this confused, you know, first generation uh, American born, like, 
treading a couple of cultures and a few careers. And I, I think he has an appraisal of me. And perhaps he can sum it up in some sort of generational phrase or whatnot. But I, w- I just want to see where he sees me in the entire unfolding of American culture and trends. Because I can't quite figure it out. Say more. Is it what I talked about earlier in terms of the powers of observation? Like, we haven't talked about his sort of sociological orientation and the influence of Max Weber, right? And in terms of understanding society, I mean, I think ultimately, in so many ways, he is actually a sociologist. Yeah, so it's observation, but it's observation in a cultural context that he does. Right. You know, observation, right. you right. can assign that to a, a therapist or a, a psychiatrist that says, you know, assesses What's behaviors and thoughts and whatnot. But what Tom Wolfe does is does it very well in a larger context of society. So yeah. it's not just you and your values and your preferences and your behavior that shapes you, but it's also the forces that are happening in the society around you. Yeah. And I'm, I think that's a superpower perhaps that he has in an individual appraisal of somebody which we've never seen before other than him bashing Leonard Bernstein's wife. Yeah. You know, I'd like to get a slightly more objective, hopefully less cynical appraisal. I devoutly believe that each of us life is determined by two things, not just your own psychological makeup, but by the fact that you're going to intersect with society. I think of the individual as vertical and the society as this um, broad plane, and you're going to change when you intersect with society, whether you want to or not. There is no way to understand individuals particularly today, without understanding the society around them. You know, much like a great comedian, I mean, one thing, I don't always love Seinfeld, but one thing I think Seinfeld does very, very well, so does Larry David for that matter, is identify situations at which social norms fall apart. And like, what are the rules in those situations? That, that That's such a like, pay attention to small things and you can extract out so much more. Tom Wolfe does that. That's what Powers of Observation is really all about. The little things that nobody else is paying attention to will tell you so much of what you need to know. Yeah, which is what I go back in my arguing with you on your point number five. Like, I, I think he'd be a great third host for this show because uh, yeah. he does so much what we attempt to do. I've tried to bring him into this conversation as much as we could, considering that the man is dead. Yes. Which brings us to our final category, the Vanderbeek, named after James Vanderbeek, who famously said in Varsity Blues, I don't want your life. Ahmed, do you want Tom Wolf's life? Uh, let's stack the cards here. So I, I think we both like the work, but as we've said infinite times over, the Vanderbeek is not about liking the work or liking um, them per se. Yeah. It's is the totality of everything desirable to us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Individually. Yeah. Okay, let's 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 break this down on on a few different levels. The superficial levels are actually pretty good. Twenty million dollars. That's a nice number. Has a family when he's ready for a family and seems like an engaged father, what we can tell, pretty good. Famous yeah. in a way that doesn't look too intrusive. You know, he he sort of gets to decide when he's public and when he's private. That and, uh, power the is, does that for him. Yeah. And the wardrobe does a lot of that for him. That is pretty good. The things that I love about him are very compelling. I want to be a, a great writer. I want to, you know, have have <laughs> Power of words, power of observation. I do like the job, you know, and he lived a long and graceful life. I think it was also really interesting. I think the the things, projects he got to go into, 
you know, and, and the, the things he took an interest in and got immersed in, that looks like fun. It's like you said, kind of a travel writer experience in a way. I also think a life of the mind, you know, has some real appeal to me. Even though it's arrogant at times, I do like the intellectual aspects of his personality and of his interests and from what I can tell, even of his friendships. There is something sort of lurking here in terms of, you know, my heaviest criticism of this life is it looks a little bit unbalanced in terms of self-reflection and, you know, personal, maybe even spiritual growth. You know, I, I, I'm sure some of that does come from the work itself, that every time you finish an article or finish a book, there does feel like a, an evolution, an internal evolution of where you were before you started and what it feels like now that it's out in the world. I, I, so, but I don't know if that is as good as, uh, as other forms of um, self-actualization that I referenced a minute ago. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I don't know. There's 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 actually a pretty heavy case for but some pretty strong evidence against too. I'm 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 actually pretty 50-50 right now. Yeah, yeah, and I am too. And this is where I'm leaning. And I, I agree with you. I, I don't see the self-actualization. You know, I don't see a reckoning with the throwing stones and you know the possible destruction. But I kind of see this, you know, in a Maslow's hierarchy way. Right, that like you know, obviously, if if everybody can achieve the top of the crown of self actualization, then great. Yes, we all want their life. Yeah. But if you can kind of live at the upper area of one of the lower quadrants of Maslow's <laughs> hierarchy, then I think you're doing pretty good. I think it sucks if you're at the bottom of the next hierarchy. If you're striving for self actualization and get absolutely like nowhere. On it, I think that sucks. But if you're in, you know, if you're just at the top of some other need pool and you haven't really crossed in to the zone of self actualization, I think you're happy. I think you perhaps have not reached a spiritual epiphany, but I don't mind it. I I don't think it compromises uh, happiness. I don't think it compromises whatever perception I have of universal. Justice. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I'll i say yes. I'll take it. I, I won't, like, if, if this is a pure measure of spirituality, no. If this right. is taking everything into account, which it is, then I'll say yes. I want your lifetime, Wolf. That makes sense. I think that's a really good answer. And I, I may be there, too. I think, you know, one of the things about the Vanderbeek question is always, like, what of my own biases am I zeroing out? You know, because I I can never zero it all out and and approach each of these as a completely blank slate. So there there's internal spiritual growth or, or, or psychological growth or or both is something that I've cared more about lately. But I do think a lot of it does come with creative expression. And to your point about pivot, I mean, I think he followed a creative evolution in his own work that that was uh, cumulative. You know, would I have liked to have seen other things? and acts of self-reflection and humility. Yeah, I think so, but I don't know that that's a deal breaker for me. And everything else really is pretty exciting and pretty compelling. And and, and I don't know. I mean, there's also even something to be said of being a kind of figure where people argue about you, you know, and argue about your claims as well as your decisions and your existence. Uh, you know, th- there is a ongoing conversation that whether he's explicitly referenced or not, I think that, you know, he did something. 
legacy wise, and I think he's, you know, is somebody to talk and think about. I, I, I like that. I like that too, you know? So I, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'll take it. I think it's not a hard yes for me. It's not an overwhelming yes. I have some reservations with it. But I too want your life, Tom Wolf. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm in that 50 to 60% category. But yeah. yeah. But I said yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah. But it, but also a very different kind of figure for us in the show. So I'm yeah. glad we had I'm glad we hashed it out. Okay. Well, I think we're there. Okay. Amit, you are author Tom Wolf. You have died and uh, have ascended to uh, somewhere. There's something behind you. Uh, and what stands between you and that something is uh, St. Peter, the proxy for the afterlife. And you have an opportunity to make your pitch to St. Peter about your great contribution to the stream of life. The floor is yours. Ah, okay, St. Peter, there is entertainment. There was entertainment. There was also life. There were real things happening. Before I existed, they they were two circles that did not overlap. And that was a problem. That was a problem because you can't be entertained entirely by fantasy. You need to be entertained by what's actually happening and existing in the characters in the real, live, breathing world around us. What I did and why, what I introduced and then later carried forward in my career, even as I stopped writing nonfiction, was to make real things that have actually happened entertained. And while some may make an argument that I perhaps I did that at a distance without the true self-reflection or self-actualization, I damn well helped other people get there by introducing them to reality in a very, very fun way and they can take from it what they want, either entertainment, self-reflection, or just a way to pass the time. Let me in. Famous and Gravy listeners, before you leave, I have a request. If you are interested in participating in our opening quiz where we reveal the dead celebrity, then send us an email. You can reach us at hello at famousandgravy.com. It's usually pretty fun, and it only takes a few minutes. Thank you so much to Jennifer Keishan Armstrong for joining us on this episode. If you're interested to learn more about her work or if you want to purchase her books, which I highly recommend, you can find out more at jenniferkarmstrong.com. Jennifer, J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R. Please tell your friends about us. You can find us on Twitter. Our handle is Famous and Gravy. We also have a newsletter, which you can sign up for on our website, famousandgravy.com. Famous and Gravy was created by Amit Kapoor and me, Michael Osborne. This episode was produced by Jacob Weiss. Original theme music by Kevin Strang. Thank you for listening. Tell your friends. See you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.